Amen. You all can be seated. You can open up your copy of the scriptures, if you have one, to Matthew chapter 2. That's the first book of the New Testament. We saw some of the first chapter of it last Sunday. We're going to try to go through the entire second uh, chapter today as we continue our Advent series. I want to know a couple of things Christmas related before we get uh, into the text this morning. One is that we have a Christmas Eve service coming up. We do that most years and we're planning to do that again uh, this year. So December 24th, that's a Friday. Friday uh, this year at 6.30 p.m. right here in this room. We'll have a service about an hour long uh, where we'll sing. Uh, we are going to have the word read. Uh, Adam Pennard even, uh, who's one of our members who we're hoping to send out with his wife Claire as a church planner within the next couple years is going to be preaching for us. So I'm excited to have him uh, open the word for us that evening. So I would encourage you if you're in town to come, uh, try to arrange your evening where you could have an hour uh, to, to be with the church family. And then if you have family from out of town or if you have neighbors or co workers, people, especially if you know they're not part of a local church, or maybe if they don't even know the Lord at all, I would encourage you to invite them to join with you, look for them at the door, sit with them, sing with them, um, but I'm looking forward to that evening. Uh, it will be a good evening together. And the other thing was just, if you haven't been here the last couple Sundays, we have some trees at the back of the auditorium here uh, that have some ornaments on them where there's either gifts that you could go uh, buy to help support local ministries or items that you could even donate funds to, like some uh, missionary endeavors for Chris and Evie Jones and Papua New Guinea, and then even a very local, very tangible thing we're trying to build over by the trailhead, a gaga ball pit, which I'm excited about just to keep further expanding our ability uh, to have a space that we can minister from and that people can enjoy in our community. So there's opportunities. Those will be up through the 26th, so we've got a couple more Sundays uh, that you could grab those. Uh, but thank you for those that have already been doing that. It's been encouraging to see, but I want to encourage you to check those out today. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 2 here in just a moment, but I was, I was thinking of this, and I did a test run on this with my kids, and they gave me the answer that I thought most people would give. Um, but the question that I was kicking around in my mind this week in preparation for this sermon was, uh, what is the most common word? Like, if you had to pick one word that we typically associate with the word Christmas in our culture, and I'm not talking like conceptual, I'm talking like what we actually say, what we sing, what you see on posters, what you see on cards that you get, things like that. It usually comes right before the word Christmas. Uh, I'm actually going to see if you all will say the same thing. What would be the one word? Let's say it on the count of three. One, two, three. Mary. Okay, I heard a couple other ones. Most people said Mary, not, not like Jesus' mother, Mary, but Mary, like M-E-R-R-Y. And I think that's right. That's what I would think that we most associate with the word Christmas. We say it all the time, right? We say Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. Uh, it is embedded in the songs, the playlists that we probably hear this time of year. We sing a song about us wishing Merry Christmas, like we wish you a Merry Christmas, like just saying Merry Christmas isn't enough. We wish you a Merry Christmas. Uh, have yourself a Merry Little Christmas, whatever that means. Uh, and Happy Holidays. We even up it a little bit and say a very, very, very Merry Christmas uh, is what we want people to have. And White Christmas, we say may your days be merry and bright. Uh, we sing God rest ye merry gentlemen. It is all over the place, right? And I was thinking about this. I don't think I literally outside of the month of December... I don't think I hear the word, I could count on one hand each year the amount of times I hear the word Mary, M-E-R-R-Y, outside of the month of December, outside of the Christmas setting. It's just we don't say it. Like it's just isolated to Christmas and we kind of mindlessly, I think, say it. And I think what we don't realize is that subtly we've just learned to associate Christmas with merriment. Which, when we say Merry Christmas, Mary has this idea of kind of a, 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 I would say like a shallow idea of like happiness or sentiments or, or being with our family, those types of, of things. That's what we have subtly started to learn to just flatten Christmas down to, especially in secular circles. But even in Christian circles, we flatten down Christmas to just, and we just speak of it in terms of merriment. I want you to have a Merry Christmas, and you'd have a Merry Christmas, and you'd have a Merry Christmas. But what we realize in life, and maybe some of you are realizing that this Christmas, is that there's sometimes when you're coming to that holiday, you don't feel merry. Like the, the things in your life, the things that are going on in your life, either in the immediate moment or that year or maybe that, was dec that decade of life that is leading up to that holiday, 
tip you away from merriment. They tip, they tip you away from just this fleeting, shallow happiness. And what happens then is when, when we just associate Christmas with this merriment, and that's all we think it is about, that's all the message that it communicates, and we don't feel that that doesn't resonate in our soul, then we just either avoid the holiday, we try to not think about it, we maybe even distance ourselves from people who are the more merry, jolly, holly jolly type of people, right? We distance ourselves from them. And what can happen even further is if suffering remains and, and difficulty remains in our life, we can start to even not just get frustrated and distant from God's people, who we think have this, this maybe fleeting idea of what Christmas is about, but we can even start to distance ourselves from God himself. We can think, if that's what all these Christians say Christmas is about, is just this merriment, this happiness, this sentiment of, of being with our family and having peace and, and all these good things, these good gifts of God, and I don't have that, I'm not experiencing that in my life, it can start to plant seeds of doubt and frustration and bitterness, even with God himself. And what I want us to see as we read through Matthew 2 this morning, though, is that the Christmas story, even in the Bible itself, which is the most important, the only place to truly find it, is not devoid of suffering. Like, there's some really great, glorious, beautiful things, but there is some awful things in this story as well. Very painful, grievous things that take place right around and after the birth of Jesus that don't often make it onto our Christmas cards or don't make it into even our readings that we do as churches. But I want us to see it and face it because I want all of us to know, whether we are feeling merry or whether we're feeling that lacking in our lives, I want us to know that the Christmas story has much to speak to us who are suffering. It's not just a message for the jolly. It's not just a message to produce merriment in people in a fleeting way now, but it has very deep things to speak to us even when those things are lacking, even when we're in the throes of pain and sorrow and suffering. And so we're going to read through Matthew 2 this morning. Uh, the first half does make it often into our reciting of the Christmas story. The second half, when we get to that, we're going to see is usually off the radar screen, not talked about, but God wanted us to know it. And so, but we're going to look at both of those this morning. Okay, so I'm going to read for us. I'm go- Usually I'll read the text just in its entirety. Uh, I'm going to break it in a few chunks today. So I'm going to begin by reading Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And then we'll pause, and then we'll read a little bit more a few minutes later. But if you have found Matthew 2, I'm going to start in verse 1, read down to verse 12. Uh, this is following on the heels of what we looked at last week, where this angel had come and told Joseph that his betrothed wife, Mary, was con- had a baby that was conceived by the Holy Spirit, who was going to come and save his people from their sins. And then this is how Matthew continues the story. He wrote this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I want to stop there. This is the part that we're largely familiar with, I think. It, it makes the movies. It makes even the, the secular versions of the, the birth of Jesus. Uh, but there's, in the beginning part of this narrative, the, the immediate aftermath of Jesus being born, 
There really is notes that would be like merry, right? Of joy. There, there's optimism. There, there's happiness, it seems. There's hopefulness that's growing amongst God's people, right? Uh, glorious things that just happened in Bethlehem, right? That this baby had been born. Angels had appeared and sung to these shepherds. And the shepherds had come into the town and no doubt had spread the good news that this Savior was born. I'm sure people were, it was the talk of the town there. There had been these glorious glorious things that had happened, not least of which is the birth of God, the Son, right? There have been these wonderful things happening. And even, I would note, a glorious thing that's taken place at the beginning of this is that the good news of Jesus, this King of the Jews, is even starting to spread to Gentiles. Uh, that, that somehow, and I'm not even going to try to explain how this star rose and how these guys knew what it represented. I don't know that we can totally know that. But somehow God had communicated to these men to, to come to the land of Israel because this king of Israel had been born. And there's this good, they did. Like they sacrificed, they came together with expensive gifts. They, they traveled from afar like we always sing about, right? And they came to worship, not just to, to meet, but to worship this newborn to worship this little boy boy we don't know exactly how old he would have been but he was very very young they came to worship him right on their way to Bethlehem they're led to Jerusalem the capital city though where King Herod is right and they 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 talk to him they they're saying that they're seeking out where this king would actually be maybe they assumed he'd be born in uh, the city there of Jerusalem the capital but as Herod consults the, the scribes and the priests of the Jewish people, they tell him, based on this prophecy that's quoted in verse 6, this prophecy from the book of Micah, that it's actually this little town, oh little town of Bethlehem, where the Messiah was going to be born, where this king was going to be born. And so uh, Herod sends them there, but really they're led by the star there, right? The star somehow rises again and takes them more directly to the city of Bethlehem. And they find Jesus, they, they go and they see him, verse 11, right? They see his mother and they fall down and worship him. That is glorious. You have these wealthy, it seems like, wise people from foreign lands who are coming to see this long-awaited Messiah born in this little town to what would have felt like to nobodies of Mary and Joseph. They're coming and they're worshiping. They're giving him these glorious, expensive gifts, right? So there's these wonderful things. There's these merry things happening, right, after the birth of Jesus, right? But even in what we just read, and you probably heard it, and especially if you know the rest of the story that's to come, there's some really ominous kind of like minor chords played also, right? It's, it's not just sheer bliss and joy and happiness. There's, if you have eyes to see it, there's some, some ominous things even in what we just read, right? Like if you look at verse 3, Herod the king, which he was, he's, was the king over the Jewish area, but he was not a Jew himself, right? He would have been like a puppet king of sorts of the Roman Empire over these people. So it says in verse 3, When Herod the king heard that these men have come uh, to, to find this newborn king of the Jews, it says, he was troubled, right? And then, and this is hard to even make sense of, and it says, and all Jerusalem with him. So that this foreign king Herod is concerned, he's troubled that there's this news of this long-awaited king to be born, and even it seems like people in Jerusalem maybe even fellow Jews, are, are troubled by this saying, right? That, that's this minor chord played. Verse 7, after Herod finds out that this baby was to be born in Bethlehem, it says that Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, right? It's not just having a public meeting in his court for everybody to hear. He, he brings them in privately and he figures out about how long ago this star rose, maybe about how old are we talking that this supposed newborn king would be, which kind of just flags on us, like, why is he wanting to know that? What's he going to do? But he, he tells them, right, like, when you find him, verse 8, when you find him, bring me word that I too may come to worship him. And if you know much about kings, you, you probably can realize that he's probably not really actually wanting to come worship a rival king, right? Uh, that, that he's trying to deceive them, which if they are wise men, they probably saw through that themselves, I'm guessing, right? But then the end of what we read, verse 12, there's this last ominous note before things really turn and get dark. 
It says in verse 12 that being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, that the wise men departed to their own country by another way. And so that starts to tell us, whoa, like Herod is a dangerous person. Like he's not a person to be trifled with. He is not coming to worship this baby. They are warned to not go back through Jerusalem. And so they go a different route back to their homeland. So presumably even they were going to be under threat, right? Like so they're, they're warned to not go. Okay, so there's these ominous chords, these, these minor chords playing in this story. And we're going to see now, as I read verses 13 to 18, and then I'll stop there, we're going to see why some of those ominous, like minor chords have been played. So if you follow along, starting in verse 13 now, that they have, after they've worshipped this child and they've departed to go back to their own country, this is how Matthew continues the story. Now when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. We'll hit pause there. We'll read the last few verses here in just a few minutes. This doesn't make it into our our accounting often of the birth of Jesus, this part of this story, but it did make it into God's accounting of it, right? It did make it into Matthew's accounting of it. God wants us to know that this took place. Uh, And what unfolded there, just to to recap it, in case you missed it, is that an angel comes, an angel of the Lord, verse 13, comes to Joseph in a dream. That seems to be a common way that God communicated with Joseph, at least. He appears to him in a dream and tells him to rise and take Jesus and to take Mary and to flee, to go to the land of Egypt and to stay there for a while, an indeterminate amount of time. We, we know when Herod died. He, he didn't know when Herod would die. He, this angel just tells him, you guys need to up and leave. You need to get out of here now. And he, he tells him why. He says, because Herod, the end of verse 13, Herod is about to search for the child, talking about Jesus, to destroy him. Not to worship him. He's about to search for him to come and destroy him, Joseph. You guys need to leave. And so he flees, right? Verse 14, just like he obeyed the first time that the angel came to him in chapter 1, he obeys now. I cannot imagine what that would have been like as as a dad, as caring for a baby, caring for a, a wife, being in a very vulnerable state, not having a lot of resources, being told, you all need to leave now. They are coming. The most powerful man in the land is coming to kill your son. But he obeys. He flees. And then Matthew tells us a a little bit of what's going on in the mind of Herod. Starting in verse 16, it says that Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men and he became furious. And what Herod does then, we may have thought at this point, man, like that was a close call. Like Jesus got out of there. Like the, the God spared this one that, that Herod was coming to try to destroy. That was close, uh, just got by. But Herod in his anger and his fury does something horrible, like horrific, like even unfathomable, hard to even comprehend. And it's just mentioned very quickly. But verse 16, it says, after he became furious, he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. He sends his soldiers from Jerusalem to this little town of Bethlehem to these unassuming people who it seems did not even know what was coming. And these people, we don't know how long it would have been since Jesus had been born, 
But these people in and around Bethlehem who had heard, maybe heard the angels singing from afar, right? or had heard these shepherds come and say like, guys, the Messiah was just born in our town. And they had seen Jesus. They had maybe seen Mary holding him. They had seen Joseph smile. They had seen the relief on their face. They had seen and believed that this glorious thing had happened, that our Savior's just been born. The same people who had heard angelic announcements possibly are now hearing the hoofbeats of Herod's soldiers coming and the, the sound of swords coming out for them to slaughter their sons. Like all of them. Like indiscriminately. And it would not have been a, a big town. I don't know what the quantity would have been, but that is irrelevant. He, he is just mercilessly coming and killing all of these baby boys. All of these toddlers and down these boys. And Matthew even tells us, he says in verse 17, that this, this killing of these children in and around Bethlehem, in the region around it, was a fulfillment, verse 17 and 18, a fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah, from Jeremiah chapter 31, where Jeremiah had, had prophesied a voice heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, who was like this, one of the matriarchs of the nation of Israel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, not just because they're sick, not because something awful has happened, but they're going to recover from, but because they're no more. Matthew is saying that this is a fulfillment of what Jeremiah anticipated, which makes us realize, and this is hard to wrap our minds around, but God knew this was coming. Like, this wasn't just something Herod concocted outside of God's oversight. Like, God knew and had prophesied it well in advance that when the Messiah came, that there was suffering and death that was going to come to his people also. That it wasn't just going to be merry. It wasn't just going to be pleasant. It wasn't just going to be uh, hallelujahs all around, constantly, perpetually, permanently, that there was going to be dark, dark things that took place with the coming of the Messiah as well. God knew that. God had planned for that even to be in his providence. And what I want you to see, what I want us to see from this text, from this section of this text, is this. A very simple statement. It's very obvious, but it's important. Is that Christ's people still suffer. Like even after he has come, since he has come, in this day when he was a newborn, and in this day today when he's been on the throne of heaven for a couple thousand years now, Christ's people still suffer. But his first entrance into our world did not remove all the suffering of his people, did it? Like this is the first example where we see that very clearly, unquestionably. The first coming of Jesus did not get rid of suffering. It did not just wipe away all trial and sorrow and pain and death and grief, right? And we need to dispel that idea that we subtly have believed that Christianity, or some people at least, subtly believe that Christianity means, like if we truly believe it, if we truly embrace it, that we will have peace right now, 100%, no suffering, no trial, no pain. That when we give our life to Christ, when we turn our life over to him, bliss merriment, health, long life, nice family, nice job, all these things that I may long for. That is what we believe. And that how we talk about Christmas often in our culture doesn't help that sometimes. I was asking a few people just to, to pull them this morning. Uh, I'd be curious if any of you, you don't have to answer this out loud, but I was curious as we think of nativity sets and we set those up maybe around our houses or in our wherever we set those. I don't, I don't know where you place them. But how many times in your life have you ever seen Herod's soldiers in a nativity set? I'm guessing none, right? Like we're, we're eager to put the shepherds there. We're eager to put the wise men there. We're, we obviously have Mary and Joseph and Jesus there. We have animals there. We leave this part out. Like, like, we don't put them there because that doesn't fit with how we like to think of Jesus. It doesn't fit with how we like to think about life. We like to just think that Jesus' arrival just meant everything was great. Like, like that, that there is peace now, there's harmony, that, that all things are being made new, and that is true. But Christ's people still suffer. They suffered then, they suffer now. 
right? Christ's people still suffer. And there are two types of suffering that I say that we would experience, we even experience today still. That would even be represented in this room, one category for sure. The second one that I'll talk about. But there's two types of suffering that Christ's people, even you yourself, still will experience today. The first, which is less common in our day, in our setting, is mistreatment and suffering that comes for being associated with Jesus. That's what happened here, right? These boys weren't killed because of just random things. They were killed because they were associated with the people of Christ. Because they were Jewish boys. Because they were part of this region where this Messiah had come. They were killed because of their association with Jesus. Whether they would have realized that or not in their young little brains, probably not. Whether their parents would have realized that or not. They were suffered. They suffered. They had their lives taken. They were mistreated because of their association with Jesus. And it is important for us to know, this struck me this week. That when Jesus entered into the world, when God the Son entered into the world, it actually increased suffering, right? It provoked it. Like Herod was totally fine with all these families being around Bethlehem and and doing their thing and worshiping their God and, and just staying out there. But when the Messiah comes onto the scene, hostility increased, didn't it? It, it, it provoked, it, it increased suffering of God's people. And that is very much because Satan himself, I think we should see behind the person of Herod here. Not in some weird, like he's possessed type of way, but in the, in the reality that when we zoom out in this broader story of the Bible, we know from the Garden of Eden that God had promised that someday there would be this offspring of, of, of uh, Eve. Right? who would someday crush the head of the serpent. And I believe for millennia leading up to this, Satan himself, that serpent, was trying to discern who is this person. When's he coming? Like, and I want to be on high alert. And when he started to know, and when his, whatever you want to call them, like proxy kings, like people like Herod, started to hear that the Messiah is coming, opposition increased. Hostility increased against these people. They, they, Satan was not okay with just letting this supposed Messiah come into the world and, and do his thing. And so he, I believe, moves in the heart of Herod to go and increase opposition, to take these boys down, to put them to death, to try to squash any possibility that this boy could rise up and crush the head of the serpent. And so we need to be aware of that. I, I, I want us to be aware of that as a church. Even, even if we don't experience a lot of direct mistreatment and suffering because of our association with Jesus, I will tell you this, at least at minimum, as we continue to raise up people in our church to go to the nations and to go to places like we've sent people recently and may send people in the future where there is no gospel at all, where there are closed countries, where there's people who are more overtly hostile to the name of Jesus, this will happen to us through them, perhaps, but opposition because of association with Jesus and because of the proclaiming that he has actually come will increase uh, suffering. It will increase grief in the life of God's people because of our association with Christ. So we may experience that type of suffering today, but more also, I think more commonly, we experience suffering, even as the people of Christ today, just more generally in life, right? His first coming did not just make it so that anybody associated with him now just has peace and health and ease and that, that he smooths out all the roads of life for us, right? We know that if we live more than a, a month, live more than a year as a follower of Christ, we know that our life doesn't get simpler. We know that we, we still in God's providence have trial and hardship that comes to us. And God's people in the Old Testament had this assumption. I don't blame them. I probably would have also. They had this assumption as they kept looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. They had this assumption that whenever he finally came, like whenever he entered into our world, whenever he did his thing, peace, shalom, they would have been the word they used, right? Like that there's going to be this calmness, this, this tranquility, this merriment that we're going to finally enjoy as the people of God. Because there's these promises that, that seem like that, right? That, that state that things like that are going to come through the Messiah. And so they expected, rightfully, when he comes the first time, 
boom, it's over. Like, it'll be pure bliss, peace. What they did not realize is that there was going to be two comings of the Messiah. Right? That there was going to be one coming, his first one, to suffer in our place. Like, to live righteously for us. To deal with the wrath of God that should be coming down upon us, which I'll talk about in a moment. That then he was going to return to heaven to reign for it. Now it's been a few thousand years at least. I don't know if it'll be a few thousand more. It could be tomorrow. But he has reigned now for a long time on heaven and someday he's going to return again. And though peace has been established between us and God, there is coming a day future where there will be sheer permanent peace for God's people forever on a new earth. But they viewed those things flatly. They, they thought both of those were going to come when the Messiah showed up the first time. And so you could imagine their surprise when they, did, they heard from these, these shepherds, they heard from Mary and Joseph that this is, this is the Messiah, guys. He is coming. He, he is here. Like God is with us now. Emmanuel, right? God is with us. And then no more than maybe a few months later, they hear the hoofbeats of Herod's soldiers and their sons are killed. And they could think, what in the world? Like, I thought that this Messiah was coming to bring peace. I thought both of the, it was just going to be harmony and, and good and, and all pain and suffering would be removed. And it's like slowly that horizon is being stretched back for God's people to know the first coming of Jesus did not fix all of that. The first coming of Jesus did not yet remove death for us. Did not yet remove opposition. Did not yet remove sick diagnoses. Did not yet remove poverty. Did not yet remove suffering from our lives. If anything, sometimes it intensifies. Right? And we as the people of God who live now between those two comings of Jesus, who have seen what he did in his first coming, but who wait for him to return to fully establish that peace, we have to learn as the people of God in this era we have to learn, I would say, to both speak and to listen to the language of lament, right? It struck me, like I've read this several times this week, but to just read that prophecy of Micah and to imagine the mothers especially, but no doubt the fathers too, they're in and around Bethlehem to, to hear their lamentation, their weeping, right? Refusing to be comforted. Like a lot of times we just act like, oh man, when there's grief and trial, it's, it's easy. Like Jesus has defeated death, like hope waits us, just get over it. And these people had their sons killed and they're lamenting. And like we as the people of God need to learn in our own life to not just sidestep suffering, pretend it's not there, to never give voice to the pain and struggle that we're dealing with, and to certainly not impose that upon other people either. And when we start to see sorrow and hear lamenting in their voice, just be like, oh, you need to take that somewhere else. Or like, you need to keep that down. God's people, to this day, even after the first coming of Jesus, still lament. We still suffer, Right? And we will until we die or until Christ returns. And this text teaches us that. The first coming did not remove our suffering. Christ's people still suffer even today. But the story did not end here, right? It didn't just end with Jesus as an infant or as a toddler and his family fleeing Right, it continues. Matthew continues for, what, 26 more chapters after this. I'm going to read about five verses uh, to get us to the end of this chapter. But there are some things, even in what happens immediately after this, that I think are important for us to see. So I'm going to read the last several verses of this text uh, to, to help see what took place after this. After this lamenting and weeping. So Matthew continues, verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So what happens here? So this text starts with what even was referred to back in verse 15. It starts with the, the death of Herod. 
So that king who had sent those soldiers, who had ruthlessly sent those soldiers to go and kill those boys, he dies. Right? When Herod died is how that paragraph starts. And an angel comes to Joseph in the land of Egypt and appears to him in a dream again which I don't know what your dreams are like. I think God can communicate at times through dreams. My dreams are not remotely like this, uh, but it seems to be a common thing with Joseph. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and tells him it's time to go back. Like they wouldn't have had like the ticker on the, the bottom of their TV screens that were non-existent telling them that King Herod had died, right? Uh, but he, he's told by this angel that Herod has died, you can go back. It's time to go back to the land of Israel, which as an aside is just a really glorious, wonderfully cool, for lack of a better word, connection to the Old Testament, right? That God's people had gone into Israel or into Egypt, Right? And then we're brought back into the promised land that God had given. You see that happening even in the life of Jesus. Like he's this true Israel who had gone into Egypt and is now coming into the promised land to be with his people. But, but Joseph, being a good father, uh, being obedient first, I would say, to the angel and to God's voice through the angel, rises, verse 21. This is a pattern in Joseph's life. He rises and obeys. But being a good father... Verse 22, when he hears that Herod's son, Archelaus, is, is reigning in the, the region of Judea, he doesn't want to go there. Like he knows, man, if, if the father was opposed and sent a death squad to come after my son and we barely escaped that, what's his son going to do to us? Is it going to be any different? So he's, he's nervous and fearful to, to go there, right? But the angel tells him, uh, again in a dream, to go to the district of Galilee, the end of verse 22, and he does. That's where he moves and, and settles his family, a small town far out of the way, little notoriety, it would have been more anonymous for Jesus to, to be raised and to live as a boy, as a teenager, as a young man. And I, I want to share a little bit of what I, I think, a way that we could misread this text, this chapter collectively and what took place I want to try to head off a potential misreading of it. Because as I was reading it this week, I was, I was imagining the mind of somebody who maybe is going, maybe you, who's going through a lot of pain and suffering. Or maybe the mind of someone who's very skeptical of Christ and his goodness. And I, I could imagine how we could read a story like this, where this, this baby is born and then this angel comes and tells Joseph, like, hey, secret, Herod's about to send people, you guys need to get out of here and doesn't tell anybody else, and they get out, and then everybody else's babies and, and little boys get slaughtered. It, it could feel, I could see how somebody could read this as like, what is that? Like this preferential treatment of Jesus and his family, like that they're just shielded from suffering. They're, they're protected almost like in a bubble where, where nothing bad could happen to them, and meanwhile, the, the people around them just suffer, and literally these boys get slaughtered. And then he gives them this special treatment to come back in the land and gives this insight, kind of this foresight to Joseph to know where to go. It could feel like Jesus and his family were, were in a divinely way, evasive, being able to escape suffering and trial and difficulty and death while everyone else suffered, right? And it made me think of earlier this year, I won't get into like the politics of this, that is not my point at all, but what happened in the nation of Afghanistan earlier this year, when the Taliban started to come in, some of you remember this, uh, when they started to come in and take, retake over the land and they're getting closer and closer to Kabul, right, and their president uh, of Afghanistan at that time, his name is Ashraf Ghani, as, as the Taliban soldiers got closer and closer, do you know what he did? He left. Right, like he, he hightailed it, he, he got out of there, and I'm not judging necessarily what he did. I don't know what I would have done. But he left, and all the citizens of Kabul, most of them could not get out and are left under the, the rule of this Taliban who may mistreat them, may even take their lives at times. And, and your mind would think, what kind of leader is that? Like, what kind of leader is it who when opposition comes, you just up and are gone and you let everybody else suffer 
and your place. You, you let them take the bullets. You let them take the swords like the, these boys of Bethlehem and your family is spared. You, your skin, your hide is spared. And there could be the, this cynical bent that, that would grow, this, this bitter root that could grow in our heart if we start to see Jesus that way. I trust that most of us know the rest of the story, though, or the rest of the story of Jesus' life. And that the sparing of Jesus from this suffering wasn't just to exempt him from suffering altogether, right? The sparing of Jesus from this suffering was so that he could eventually endure something infinitely worse, right? Like he was spared from this. He was not spared from suffering. He was not spared from death. Because as, as Matthew continues his story, and I'd encourage you to read it if you've never had, read through the rest of this book of Matthew. Read about the life of Jesus. Because as Jesus gets toward the end of his life, the beginning of his life we just read about, but as he gets closer to the end of his life, Herod had died, of course. We just read that. More rulers had come and died. But you know who had not died? was Satan. Like there's more opposition keeps rising up against Jesus just in different ways. And just like Herod kind of used trickery and deceit to try to take the life of Christ when he was a baby, Satan keeps ramping this up. He's, he's not content to let Jesus keep living, to let Jesus keep ministering. And so he connives through rulers, both religious and, and secular there in Israel, to conspire against Jesus and ultimately to arrest him, to crucify him, as one of my professors in seminary would say, that these leaders who were there at the end of Jesus' life may have had new names, different faces than the ones from earlier in Jesus' life, but they still had that same, if you want to call it like a serpentine accent, like a snake-like accent. They're, they're doing the work of Satan trying to take down this Messiah, right? And as Jesus comes to the end of his life, rather than him fleeing, from suffering like he did as a child, everyone else flees him, right? As opposition starts coming, angling at him, now everybody else knows it, and they scatter, right? And who's left there to suffer is Jesus himself. He had been the one that escaped as a baby, but he would not escape from this. He, his family had fled when he was an infant, Right? But now, as an adult, he has set his face to go to the cross. He has chosen it. He has voluntarily walked and bent himself toward it, not running from it. And it seems, as Jesus gets to the end of his life, what Herod had tried to start here when Jesus is little, that, that Pilate and the chief priests and these other players at the end of his life, it seems that they finished what Herod had tried to start, Right? They have him executed. They have him nailed to a cross. He suffers and dies. And it seems like just like these mothers may have had despair there outside Bethlehem, that God's people had despair that day as Christ died, like loud lamenting, refusing to be comforted, like Satan has won again. Like even this one that we thought was the Messiah, now he's succumbed to death. Now he has been their victim. But what is glorious to know about the cross is that there was more than what, meet, what met the eye, right? There was a whole different level of what was going on than just the nails and the trial and the betrayal of Judas and all these human level things. There was a whole nother level of what was going on at the death of Christ because Jesus knew, and the reason he was willing to go to this suffering was because Jesus knew that what his people needed deliverance from was not Herod's soldiers. It wasn't those Roman swords. It wasn't Roman taxes. It wasn't these people who were mistreating them and oppressing them. What they needed deliverance from was the wrath of God. What they needed rescue from, what we need rescue from, is the sins that we carry and the judgment that we deserve for our rebellion against God. And Jesus knew that. And he knew as he went to the cross that our sins would be counted to him. The one who had been innocent himself had our sins counted to him. 
And he suffered not just the, 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 the spear uh, going into his side and the thorns upon his head. What he suffered as he went to the cross and died was the wrath of his heavenly father for our sins. So that we might be freed from them. We might be pardoned. We might uh, be forgiven of those sins and have the favor of God upon us, right? Jesus had told people over and over again in his earthly ministry to not fear the people who could kill the body, but to fear the one who could destroy both body and soul in hell. Right? He, he knew that there was a bigger enemy to take down than Herod and Archelaus and Pilate and Caesar and whoever, these chief priests. Like He knew there was bigger targets of, of Satan himself, the ancient serpent, and of death itself, and even the judgment of God had to be born. And that is why he suffered, right? This is a, a beautiful thing for us to know. I, I would say it this way, is that Christ entered our world not to evade suffering, like happened at the beginning of his life. He didn't enter our world just to evade suffering. That would make no sense, right? But he entered our world ultimately to experience suffering and to end suffering, right? He, he, and the way he would end it would be by experiencing Right? Experiencing the judgment, the wrath of God, the death of a sinner in the place of us by his suffering, taking the full wrath of God, he ensured that someday our suffering will end. That we have now that peace that can be established with God and someday even our greatest enemies of death and Satan himself will be destroyed forever. God, and we know that is true. It's not just empty promises because on the third day, a Sunday morning, long ago after Jesus was crucified and laid in a tomb, God raised him from the dead and, and showed him, the, showed us, showed Jesus he's starting a new creation, one where there will be no suffering, where there will be no threat, where there will be no opposition, there will be no disease, there will be no disorder even. God was starting a new creation and the resurrection of Jesus and we can be part of that. Like we can be wrapped into that, brought, swept up into that even now. When we place our trust in his son, Jesus, we can be given forgiveness. We can be given eternal life. Yet, and this is mysterious, God leaves us in this fallen world right now. Even though we're swept up into his favor and swept up into this new creation, we are truly part of that now. We're also still part of this fallen creation where death still does reign, that we still have funerals being planned even this week. I have a nephew that has wrecked my heart a couple of times the last couple of months who might not even make it to Christmas. Like we have stuff like that even now, even amongst the people of God, right? But because Christ has suffered for us on the cross, he has shown us, he has ensured for us that if we are his people, someday our suffering will end. Right? Our suffering has a shelf life. It has an expiration date and it has not yet come, but it will. Because of what Christ did for us, our two greatest fears, or what should be our two greatest fears, I think, of death and the judgment of God, those should be our two greatest fears as human beings. Because of Christ and his sacrifice, we don't need to fear either of those things. We don't need to fear death and we don't need to fear God. Because Christ has lived for us and suffered for us and been raised for us. But now he has gone back to heaven, hasn't he? Like, and it could feel like, it could feel like he's left us again. Like just like he left these people in Bethlehem to suffer. Like he's left us again. Like what in the world? Like why have you left us again? But he has not left us alone. Right? He has given us his Holy Spirit and that is hugely significant that we have God with us now. Not just God representing us in heaven as God the Son. We have the third person of the Trinity, God the Spirit, living within us as his people who is with us in our suffering. Right? Who is with us in our grief. With us even when we face death. We can have confidence and assurance because of the resurrection of Jesus and because of the presence of the Spirit in our life that someday our enemies will be defeated, right? Herod died, right? Don't miss that in this text. Like every enemy, even Satan himself, who rises up against Jesus, will be destroyed. Like they have sought to destroy Christ. Christ will destroy them, right? 
He, he will. And we can take that to the eternal bank. That he will destroy his enemies. He will destroy our enemies of Satan and death one day. Amen. I, I was thinking of that. This is the last thing I'll say. That, that president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani. And I don't, I don't envy that man and what decisions he had to make. Uh, but I, I looked up some of the things that he tried to communicate to the Afghani people uh, after he had left. And one of the statements he made, I, I wanted to read to you. Because, and then I want you to think of how Jesus would, how Jesus does speak to us as the one who's gone back to heaven. This man, Ashraf Ghani, fled and went to the United Arab Emirates. And in this statement uh, that I think he probably gave just thankful that he was alive himself uh, and thankful he was able to even say anything, uh, but functionally powerless, this is what he said to his people. He said, it's with deep and profound regret that my own chapter ended in similar tragedy to my predecessors without ensuring stability and prosperity. I apologize to the Afghan people that I could not make it end differently. And when I read that, I was like, I thought, praise God, Jesus doesn't give us messages like that. <laughs> this man is sitting right now, Ashraf Ghani, is sitting in the United Arab Emirates, I suppose, still just probably depressed, discouraged, knows his powerlessness to take down the Taliban, knows how he's let down his people. He knows there's nothing he can do to fix this. There's nothing he will do to fix this. But Jesus sits on the throne of heaven right now. And he doesn't speak with any profound regret to us, right? Like he speaks to us with confidence of someone who has conquered death and who is reigning over the universe now. And he, there's no end that he cannot make different. He, that, that president said, I apologize, I couldn't make it end differently. Jesus says, brothers and sisters, my friends that I've died for, I am going to make it end differently. I have made my life end differently. I will make your life end differently. I will raise you from the dead. I will come back for you. And we will reign and rule forever. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing a closing song together. But let's pray to our, our Lord. Father in heaven, we come to you as people who live in a world of pain and sorrow, who carried burdens even into this room this morning, who have them on our minds and hearts right now, no doubt. But I pray that you would rid us of any false beliefs, that that somehow indicates you are not with us, that that somehow indicates that your promises are not true. May we remember even from this story this morning that your people still suffer, that your people will suffer, but that your son has suffered for us so that someday our suffering will end. May we believe that. May we seek to rejoice in that even as we lament. And may you help us even as we sing to anticipate the return of your son Jesus when one day our suffering will end and we will reign with him in worship of you forever. And pray this in his name. Amen.